so far in our, um, in our study of the book of Leviticus, uh, we've seen really only the law and not any, not any narrative, not any of the story, not any of the, of the history of the people of Israel. I guess you could say um, that there's historical narrative in the words that are repeated throughout the book. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, because it, it really happened, there was a point in history when God spoke the words of the book of Leviticus to Moses. But for the most part, what we've seen in our study are the law codes for Israel. We tend to think of the book of Leviticus as a law book and, and not a history book. But that's not, that's not really true. In fact, all of the books of the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, all of them are concerned with the history of God's people. They deal with God, God choosing them from among all of the peoples that He created. They recount the way that God brought them out of Egypt, what happened in the wilderness, how God made His covenant with them, and, and how worship was to be regulated. And remember, up, up until this point, they were essentially one large and growing family, the people of Israel. They were the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now, they're actually becoming a nation. Before, they had been led by their fathers, those patriarchs, but now God has chosen Moses to lead them and to establish a, a system with laws for how they were to live and worship as the nation of Israel. But as you're reading through this, it might come actually as a little bit of a surprise to find these laws and these regulations suddenly interrupted by actually a long narrative describing the, the ordination of Aaron and his sons to the priesthood. Yet what this does is establish and explain the when and the why of the laws. In fact, the entire Exodus and the wilderness narrative does that. It explains the when and the why of the laws. And what we see throughout these books is that God directed the course of history in order to create a holy people who knew God and did His will. He was creating a people for His own possession who would live as His assembly. And at the heart of this, is the establishment of a, of a pure system of worship in which God would be honored and, and praised in a, in a fitting manner and through which human sin could be atoned for. That's why the tabernacle was established, so that God's presence could become a, a permanent and, and living reality in, in Israel's religious life. See, previously... Before all of this, particularly in the book of, of, of Genesis and then the first several chapters of Exodus, previously the Lord would manifest Himself in, in kind of various and mysterious ways. The angel of the Lord to wrestle with here and, and a burning bush there. But now He would, he would dwell 
He would tabernacle with his people in a more formal and permanent way. At least, that is, permanent until he didn't anymore because of their unrepentant sin. You can read about that in Ezekiel chapter 10. Well, this tabernacle, which was furnished with the the Ark of the Covenant and the altars for sacrifices, as well as all of the equipment necessary to make atonement for the sins of the people, several chapters at at the end of the book of Exodus explain with great detail the sacred garments that the priests were to wear, as well as all of the assembled furniture of the tabernacle, how it was to be built. We've seen in these first, really all the way through chapter 7 of the book of Leviticus, we've seen that the Lord has laid out very specific regulations and laws that explain which sacrifices were to be be offered in which way and for what purpose. While there's clearly a system of priests, in, in fact we spent all of last week looking at the role of priests in that sacrificial system. Yet at this point, there's still no, there's still no official order of priests or established order of priests to carry out the ministry of atonement. Who will be these priests? What will they do? Well, now we come to a, really a clear division in the book. In fact, there's that summary paragraph at the end of chapter 7 that tells us that the subject is about to change. So, the end of chapter 7 says this, This is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the uh, peace offering, the ordination offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. That's a summary of all of the chapters up to that point. And so chapters, beginning in chapter 8 and really all the way through chapter 10, is a clear narrative. It's a story. And it tells us the the story of how the priesthood was instituted and the first sacrifices that were offered. When we get to chapter 10, um, we're going to read of the sudden deaths of two of Aaron's sons. And that serves to kind of underline for us the need for holiness among the priests, as well as the necessity of worshiping God only according to His regulated principles. In fact, kind of as an aside here, I would say that it is, it is impossible to read through the book of Leviticus and come to the conclusion that worship can be whatever you want it to be, that it can be casual and informal and flippant, That God doesn't mind how we approach Him. Because when you read through the book of Leviticus, it's really clear. He does, in fact, mind how we approach Him. And the purpose of all of these particular um, regulations and laws here is summed up really in Exodus chapter 29, verses 43 to 46. There in the tabernacle, the Lord says, I will meet with the people of Israel. And it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. 
I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am Yahweh, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh, their God. So, we have a sacrificial system in place, or at least the structure of the system. Now we need the priests to provide for the, the administration, the, the ministry of the sacrifices and, and offerings of worship. So Leviticus chapter 8, um, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read the whole chapter like I usually do. It's a long chapter. I'm going to read it in chunks like we did last week. But let's just stop for a moment and pray here. Father, it is our uh, desire that that Christ would increase, that I would decrease. It is our desire that Christ would be glorified, that you would speak to us through your word, reveal to us the marvelous things that you have done. Father, I pray that we would leave here feeling the weight of the law and also the joy of the gospel. Remind us, Lord, that Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said, um, the first seven chapters of Leviticus kind of lay the foundational instructions for the sacrificial offerings, and it does it in great detail. Um, I don't know how many times in the last couple of months I have said the phrase or read the phrase, long lobe of the liver, but more than at any other time in my life, I'm sure. Um, but in order for these sacrifices to be implemented correctly, they needed to be properly maintained and properly managed. This was to be administered by the, the priesthood, by Aaron and his sons. Again, we've already seen glimpses of their work in the previous chapters, but now we see this priesthood here officially established. Specifically, we see here the, the ordination of the priests who were primarily charged with the oversight and care of the tabernacle and the offerings. You're going to see as we work through this chapter that the sacrificial offerings of the previous chapters also play an important role in this, in this inauguration ceremony because the priests need the same atonement that everybody does. The priests need the same atonement that the people need. But I also want to point out that this is the, the implementation. This is the, uh, the implementation of the instructions that God has already given His people back in chapters 28 and 29 of the book of Exodus. If you want some riveting reading, I would encourage you to go and read this afternoon Exodus 28 and 29. It gives all of the details of what we're going to talk about today in, in great detail. And this type of, of writing where you have instruction and, and then implementation, it's fairly common in the law. That's why so much of it seems repetitive. You've noticed that, I'm sure. Um, you can see this, for example, in the, in the laws uh, concerning the, the tabernacle. Um, the instructions are laid out in great detail in Exodus 25 to 31. And then they implement those instructions in chapters 35 to 40. But beyond these things, 
Here's what we need to see this morning. Here's what I want you to pay close attention to as we work through this. This entire sacrificial system, all of it, prefigures, points to the person and work of Jesus Christ, who would not only he would not only tabernacle among men. In fact, John 1:14 says, "And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." Not only did Jesus dwell among his people, but he also became the great high priest. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 says, "Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And, and we also know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the, the perfect, spotless sacrifice. Now, before the establishment of the priesthood here, you're going to read stories uh, before you get to this point in the Bible. You're going to read stories of the heads of households effectively functioning as priests. Let me give you three quick examples and see if you can understand this. Um, beginning with Noah, in Genesis chapter 8, just verses 20 and 21, immediately after they're coming out of the ark, and Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. There's some familiar language in there. Noah is effectively acting as a priest, as the, as the head of his household. Abram does something similar in Genesis chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And, and, and remember, the, the purpose of the altars was for offering sacrifices. But then don't forget Job. Job lived sometime during this same time period, sometime there in the time of the uh, Genesis. And Job chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says this, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. He acted functioned as a priest for his family. But we also have, and I have to set all of this up, there's one other curious incident that sheds some light on things to come. I'm just going to read a part of this because I want to get into today's text. But in, in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 to 20, it says this, 
And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That priest, that mysterious priest, Melchizedek, he blessed Abram in the name of God, and he also received tithes from Abram, meaning that that Abram submitted to him. The book of Hebrews, together with Psalm 110, interprets this mysterious priest, priest of Salem, which would later be uh, named be a little place called Jerusalem, this, this mysterious priest, Hebrews and Psalm 110, interprets him as a, a type or a shadow of the priesthood of Jesus, the Messiah. The Lord is weaving a pattern for us throughout the Scriptures that all points at Jesus Christ. Some have said it is, a, it is woven with the scarlet thread of redemption, all leading to Jesus. Well, as the people of Israel transform from a family into a nation, a big part of their transformation is the establishment and ordination of this priesthood. And as we've seen over and over and over again, coming into the presence of the Lord requires sanctification. It requires a person to be made holy. Uh, Additionally, there's so much here. Additionally, the people of Israel require a mediator, one to go before the Lord on their behalf. And this priest requires a special sanctity and a distinct calling. Not just anybody could do this. Fast forward to chapter 10, verse 3. The Lord had said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And so here we have an ordination, the consecration, the the setting apart of the priests to the ministry, specifically Aaron and his sons. This was no small occasion for the people of Israel. This this event marked the beginning of sacrificial worship in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle. And as such, there are seven steps in this consecration service. And step one is the gathering of witnesses. Leviticus chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the, off, of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. Excuse me. So the Lord instructs Moses to gather, to gather all of the required uh, materials for uh, the ceremony. And he also tells him to assemble the people at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And, and I love what he says in verse 5. He says, 
to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. This is the thing. You know, the thing. He's referring to all of those detailed instructions about the priests that that have been assembled in Exodus 28 and 29. They already have that law. He's referring to to all of the information, all of the instructions that they've received about all the sacrifices, all of the offerings. Everything that the Lord has given them for instructions has led up to this point. This is the thing. This is it. This is not a drill. Because these men were to be the spiritual authorities of the people, It was vital that the congregation witness this, that they see this consecration. Now, now sometimes people have a a problem with the idea of of spiritual authority, authority in general, but spiritual authority particularly. But remember, throughout this book, we've seen this phrase or something like it repeatedly. And the priest shall make atonement for him uh, for the sin which he has committed and he shall be forgiven. There's some serious gravity in this. All that we're talking about, all that we've leading up to this point, this is the thing. And there is seriousness to these things. The Lord instructs Moses to have the people gather together to witness this ordination and thereby, as witnesses, to acknowledge that these men have been made priests by God. This is the point of all ordination services. It doesn't mean that the one ordained is infallible, nor does it mean that he should be obeyed at all costs. Rather, this is a declaration that both the one entering the ministry and the congregation acknowledge the validity of the ministry. And this is vital for the ministry to to function properly. This is what This is what the preacher of Hebrews is getting at when he says in Hebrews 13, verse 7, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then he continues down in verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I wish that phrase wasn't in here sometimes as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Can you see the the mutual acknowledgement here? These things are vital, really, for any ministry. But let's keep working through this, because the next step, once the witnesses have been assembled, the next step is in verse 6. It's this ritual washing for purification. Purification, verse 6. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. So the ceremony begins here with this this washing, this being made pure, because sin stains and defiles everything. This this signifies something, though. This isn't just merely, um, okay, wash your hands. This is more than that. This is signifying that the inner spiritual cleansing can only come from the Lord. It is necessary, it is mandatory, and it can only come from the Lord. Listen to to the Lord's rebuke of sinners in Isaiah chapter 1. This is the Lord speaking and is rebuking. He says in Isaiah 1, verses 15 and 16, 
When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Did you hear the imagery? Wash yourselves, God says. You need to be made clean. This this washing here in verse 6, just a simple little sentence. This is the ritual that signified making the unclean clean. This represents that, that restoration to, to purity of a person who had been, who'd been just so soiled by sin. This purification is the first step in removing any defilement of sin. So, so we could say it like this. Those who minister must be purified of worldly defilement. Those who minister must be purified of worldly defilement. Why? Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you when you were ordained into the ministry. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Ministers must be purified. They must run from the stain of sin. Well, next, they bring out these robes, which are given to show preparation. Preparation, verse 7, 7, 8, and 9. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied uh, the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and the breastpiece he put the Urim and the Thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. So after purification, Moses next, he, he clothed Aaron and his sons with garments, uh, garments of holiness. So in giving the initial, and I've referred to this, the initial and very detailed instructions about these robes, the Lord had said this in Exodus chapter 28. The whole chapter is about these robes and the various bits that are um, a part of them. But in the first couple of verses of Exodus 28, he said this. He said, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These garments were for glory and for beauty. Other versions might actually say glory and honor. In other words, these garments gave to the priests a dignity and an honor. Nobody else dressed like this, by the way. Nobody else wore the things that the priests wore. 
These were special and set-apart clothes. They were to give dignity and honor. They were to be reminders for the people of the glory and beauty and honor of the Lord. They had 12 stones in them with the name of each tribe on the stone that they would wear. They had, there was all kinds of symbolism in all of these things. Wearing these robes impressed upon the priests the awesome tasks that they had, and it reminded the people of the high office that they held. Now, if you'd like to read more of the details about each article of clothing, can you see where I'm going? Exodus 28, but just let me mention two that are brought up here. The ephod, um, ephod was like a, an outer um, apron that they would wear. Remember, they were butchering animals. And the Urim and the Thummim have been stumping theologians forever. We have no idea what they are. In Hebrew, Urim means lights, and Thummim means, we think, perfection. There's some kind of object, maybe a stone of some sort, and they were used somehow with the Holy Spirit to determine God's will. And even though they're mentioned several times in the Bible, Scripture does not give us a description of what they were or even what they looked like. They were just the Urim and the Thummim, which is also fun to say. Regardless, all of this put together, the robes that Moses put on Aaron, it all acted as a sign that those who minister must be prepared and equipped to do what God has called them to do. Namely, they must be prepared with the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with all her jewels. Those who minister in the name of the Lord must be prepared to do so. And at this point, we're not talking about education. We're talking about the righteousness that comes from Christ. The righteousness that comes from Christ. The fourth step is the anointing or the consecration. Verse 10, then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all of its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head to anoint him and consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Moses anointed, he sprinkled this oil uh, on uh, the tabernacle and everything in it the altar and its utensils, and, and then finally he also anointed Aaron as high priest. Now, beyond being kind of set apart for a unique role and unique responsibility, which is what this is, there's also a sign and symbol here, a sign and symbol of the Holy Spirit. 
That's what this oil represents here in the anointing. See, even though this text, even though Leviticus chapter 8 doesn't mention the Holy Spirit by name here, others, other passages make the connection for us. So, for example, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13 says this, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. See the connection? The Holy Spirit and the anointing. It's together. Isaiah 61, verse 1 is a, is a verse that Jesus applied to himself. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's not something magical or mystical. It's not something, a second step, a second blessing of some sort. Every Christian, Ephesians, tells us very clearly that every believer, all who have trusted in Christ for salvation, are filled with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is given as a seal and guarantee of our salvation until we acquire possession of it, until we see the Lord face to face in glory. But there's something special about the Holy Spirit working in people. Um, I want to be careful here. I said this before. I'm not a public speaker. I'm not, I'm not a type A personality. I'm not. There's a reason why Chad leads the prayers and all of it. He's good at that. I'm not. I can do it if I have to. But that's not my personality. Um, I struggle with aspects of leadership. The elders and the deacons help me more than more than they or you know, I can only do this, and this should be every pastor, I, I can only do this work because of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit working in and through the ministry of this church. Those who minister must be set apart for the work of God by His Spirit. Paul said to the Corinthians, he said this, And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, even him, but in the power of God. And it is the good news of Jesus Christ that is the power of God for salvation. And I would add, for sanctification as well for being made holy. It is the good news of Jesus Christ that is the power of God for salvation and for sanctification. Well, sanctification is next here, verse 14. This is the next step. Then he brought the bull of the um, sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering and he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood on the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all of the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. And he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. 
He cut the ram into pieces and Moses burned the head and the pieces of the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. So the anointing oil may have consecrated the priests to God, but it could not make atonement for them. And so Moses, as the, as the covenant mediator here, he made sacrifices for them. First, the bull for the sin offering or the, or the purification offering that we've read about before. This prepared him for entrance into the sanctuary. And then the ram for the burnt offering, which brought reconciliation with God. Whoever represented God in ministry surely must have experienced atonement, full atonement. They must be saved, we might say. The forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God must be a part of the life of anyone who would minister for him. This seems like Christianity 101. It seems like the basics but it needs to be said. Those who minister must be sanctified by the blood of the substitutionary sacrifice. This is a huge, huge danger in the Christian church. Unregenerate shepherds. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And it seems as though every New Testament writer, all of the, Paul says it over and over and over again. John warns of these things. There are false teachers who are pastors pretending to be believers that do not believe in Jesus Christ. This is a reason this is the reason that I pray often that the Lord would remove the lampstand of those churches who refuse to preach God's word. I don't mean those churches that, that don't agree with us in every jot and tittle of, uh, of theological doctrine. I mean those churches who actively refuse to preach the whole counsel of, of God. Those churches who, who fiddle about with sin and even give hearty approval to those who practice such things. Those churches are growing. I don't mean the churches themselves are often shrinking, but there are more and more of them. I pray that the Lord would either grant them repentance or break their teeth. He would close them down. That He would take down their signs out front, remove the stained glass windows that represent such stain and filth, and replace it with a people who are called by his name. Just a little bit more. The next step is the actual dedication. Dedication. Verse 22. And he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on... Um, 
the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. And he presented Aaron's sons and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf, one loaf of bread with oil, one wafer, and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and on the hands of his sons and waved them as wave offerings before the Lord. Then Moses took from their hands and burned them on the altar uh, with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil Uh, and of the blood that was on the altar, and sprinkled it on Aaron and on his garments, and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. So a third sacrifice is now made, another ram, a ram of ordination, he calls it here. But the centerpiece of this ceremony is actually verse 27. Read this verse again. He put all of these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Their hands are full. Their hands are full. Now, as I was reading this, as I was thinking of this, I I couldn't help but think of the third verse of the hymn Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless to look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the third verse of Rock of Ages. There's a reason why we sing all of the verses, because that's good. But the priests, see, we're under the gospel. We can come to the cross with nothing in our hands. But the priests, they're under the crushing weight of the law. The priest's hands were never empty. He bore the burden, not only of his own sin, but also the sacrifices of all of the people under his charge, under his care. But even beyond his full hands, it tells us that that Moses applies blood to his earlobe, his thumb, and his big toe. This covered what they heard, what they handled, and where they went. Everything in their lives was to be set apart by the blood. This was an entire lifestyle. This was an entire lifestyle. There weren't times, they didn't go on vacation. This was a holy lifestyle. All of this is confirmed in in verse 30. He mixes the blood and the oil together. There's no separation of the sacred and the secular. There can be no, well, I'm a Christian from 9 to 5. I need a day off from the faith. I take vacation from church. I remember my classmates in college talking about the effects of the the fishbowl on the life of the pastor and his family. 
as if it was something to be avoided. But listen again to what Paul tells Timothy. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Those who, those who minister must be dedicated to the total work of the ministry. The total work of the ministry. That all may see your progress. And then finally, this last step is the actual installation, the inauguration of the ministry. Verse 31. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it with, and the bread and, uh, that is in the basket of the ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and of the bread you shall burn, with, burn up with fire, and you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days, until the days of your ordination are completed. For it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you may not die, for so I have been, uh, so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. So Aaron and his sons remained in the tent for seven days, repeating these sacrifices over and over and over, so that at the end of this, the ordination became complete. This repetition of of seven days stresses the the completeness and, and the perfection of the process. And so this is drawn out over a week, a perfect week, And it was a sign to the people of the importance of the completeness of this life of ministry that these men and really the whole nation were beginning together. And and in this chapter, one thing stands out above all else, I think. One thing I think stands out above all else, the pervasiveness of sin. The men chosen to minister to God in the tabernacle, they would pollute the tabernacle. And so they themselves must be purified. Their clothes, their bodies are stained with sin and so they smear blood on them to purify them over and over and over again. The psalmist laments, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Imagine imagine this lifestyle. Hands are never empty. When the hands are empty, you wake up the next morning and somebody brings another offering and another offering and another offering over and over and over again. There's none who does good, not even one, but Jesus. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. See, Like Aaron, we need
need a daily forgiveness of sin. But unlike Aaron, we do not need to offer up these kinds of sacrifices because Christ has done this for us. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can praise God that we are not holding in our hands the weight of the law. Rather, we are under the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Pray with me. Father, it is our um, prayer that we would remember these things. The weight of the law, that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, yet because of Jesus Christ, because of the promise that John writes about there, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Lord, we can come to the table as a celebration, as a celebration that Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that all who will call upon him shall be saved, everyone And so we come to your table now, Lord, to proclaim the death of Jesus Christ, to proclaim, to hold fast to the truth that Christ proclaimed on the cross, it is finished. We come rejoicing. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.